Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Joel chapter 3 this morning. That's page 762 in a Blue Pew Bible. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to follow along there. And um, yeah, this has been an awesome service so far. Thank you to, to Megan for leading out in this. And uh, what you didn't share is that this, this really has been a vision f- of Megan's, and it's now been implemented over the last few years. And she led us, staff, leaders, and elders, of kind of casting this vision, not just leading the team of kids and, and doing it. But I um, really appreciate her, appreciate how this service uh, not only says that our kids are not kind of a sidecar to the real church ministry here, but they are very much a part of this church. And when we talk about our vision here of uh, knowing Jesus and making him known, and our responsibility to make known Christ to our children, uh, what we often don't always recognize is that those children also make Christ known to us. And that is very much a, a two-way street that uh, we see play out in our homes and in our local churches and uh, so we're so grateful for, uh, for Megan and everything that she does, uh, including leading this service. But uh, speaking of, of elementary school and, and being younger, uh, one of the first books I remember reading in elementary school, I think it was fourth or fifth grade, was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a book written by C.S. Lewis. And I obviously at the time did not know how much of an impact C.S. Lewis would go on to have in my life a decade later uh, through his writings in my college years and young adult years. Um, But for those of you who are not aware, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's a story of four siblings who discover a wardrobe in this old house. And it is a gateway to a magical land called Narnia. And this land suffers from endless winter. The curse that Narnia is under is that it is always winter and never Christmas. And that curse has been put on them by the evil white witch. And as the story goes, one of the siblings, his name is Edmund, is um, kind of drawn in by, enticed by, ultimately captured by the white witch. And so the rest of the siblings are led to the only being that can break the white witch's curse. It is a great lion the true king of Narnia, and his name is Aslan. And Aslan has not been seen in Narnia for many years, um, reasons unknown to the siblings. And in the time in the book and in the story when hope was fading and the darkness seemed to overcome them and they lost a vision for the return of their brother and for the curse to be broken, uh, Mr. Beaver says prophetically to the siblings in one of the best lines of the book, I'm going to have it on the screen. He says, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And the wise beaver casted in that moment a prophetic vision for victory that instilled hope in the midst of darkness. And as I hope will become clear this morning, C.S. Lewis's prophetic line through Mr. Beaver, it came from somewhere. As we now come to Joel chapter 3, we are now down to the final couple of weeks in our series, going through this book verse by verse. And the book of Joel is uh, a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, sent to the people of God about 400 years before Christ was born. 
And he began with a call to lament the present-day crisis and darkness that Israel was facing. And uh, it was primarily kind of seen and manifested in this invasion of locusts that destroyed the entire land. And then moving into chapter 2, Joel moved from a call to lament to a call to repent and a call to return to the Lord. And what we saw over those couple of weeks is that the moment uh, repentance represents in our lives, it is recognizing the inability, having the grace to see that we cannot save ourselves and that we need help. And that was the hinge of this short book where everything kind of flipped from this present day distress to now the promises provided in the second half. And now over the last couple of weeks, we've been able to now be able to really see and enjoy those promises, like uh, the promise to uh, restore the land and all that has been lost. Uh, The Lord said, I will restore it to the years that have been lost by the locust. And, And then last week, the promise looked further out into the future to a day when the Lord will pour out his spirit on all people. And we trace that through the biblical storyline to see how that came into fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit indwelled believers and it sparked the movement of the church. And that is a story, the story of the church that we're now still part of 2,000 years later. The story that's still unfolding. But now we get to chapter 3. And Joel is going to go even further into the future. And he's going to speak now in detail about the day of the Lord. um, Otherwise known as the day of judgment. And until now, he's been kind of laying the breadcrumbs for this day throughout the book. He's been mentioning it in various chapters, but now he's going to go all in on the day of the Lord. And outside of the book of Revelation, which is the final book of the Bible, there's no other chapter in the Bible that gets us closer to the description of what that day will look like and feel like than Joel chapter 3. And so some questions kind of emerge, like, why does the Lord fill Joel with these words? Why is it so important for Joel at this point, after he talked about, I'm going to restore the land, the Spirit will come. Why chapter 3? Why talk about the day of judgment? What is its purpose? How, how does a vivid description, as we'll see in a moment, of the day of judgment instill hope for Israel? How is it still now instill hope for the church today? How will a description of the day of judgment instill hope in you? If you're a follower of Christ. Um, Joel 3 consists of three different poems. And how we're going to break it up is that this morning we're going to look at the first two poems that are verses 1 through 16. And then next week, Lord willing, we will finish the chapter in the series with the third poem in verses 17 to 21. But with Bibles open, let's look at Joel 3. And you can follow along as I read verses 1 through 16. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. 
I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, so they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. This is the start of the second poem now, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. I think I've said this at least once before in this series, but I think at this point it's a good time to say it again, that Joel is writing of a real day. He wrote in chapter 1 of real events that were happening in Israel, real devastation, and now he's speaking of a real day that is coming. But he's doing so in the genre of of what you could call prophetic poetry. And, And so... What I said before that I'm going to say again now is that I don't think these verses are necessarily written primarily as details to be analyzed in every single word, but rather they are realities to be felt when you hear them. Realities to be felt when you read and hear them. Because in many ways, maybe you feel this way, that the day of the Lord and the day of judgment, whatever kind of history you have with that day or being taught about that day, it feels almost unimaginable to us. It feels almost disconnected from all the days that we live out here. But it is a day that will happen, and it is a day when God will gather all people who have ever lived for the purpose of judgment. And Joel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is using language and he's using pictures that allow the people who are originally hearing it to feel that day. Allowing us now, uh, 2,400 years later about, to feel that day, to touch it, to hear it. And in some ways, when I read Joel chapter 3, I feel like it's brought nearer more to my soul than even more to my mind. You know what I mean? And in many ways, that is the purpose. Like, like why are descriptions of the day of the Lord in the Bible? I think one big reason is to ensure that as we live our lives today, we never lose sight of what is coming. Like, Like, where is history headed? Like, you're living your life, and you're just like, like we all are. We're just stacking our days upon days. And you got good days, and you got bad days. But we all just have our days, and days upon days upon days, and those turn into weeks and months and years, and all the days we experience in our own lives, let alone all the days we might hear about in history. Like, where is that all headed? Like, what's the underlying story that drives it? Where is everything leading to? If we went around, I know many of you would share that you love where your life is right now. Like, you love your days. You wake up and there's a joy in, in, in your work and your family and your relationships. And, and then you're likely sitting next to people who would say that, that they're lamenting where their life is right now. They're lamenting their days. They're dreading each day when they wake up. 
And, and so whether you're on one side of the spectrum or, or the other, or most of us are probably somewhere in the middle, Joel chapter 3 describes the day that we are all headed towards together. And the Lord wants us to have a vision for this. Like, do you have a vision for the day of the Lord? And ultimately, as he does in every passage of Scripture, he wants to see this vision through the gospel in the lens of Jesus Christ. Because this passage, like every passage, can be used by God. It can be used by God to awaken faith in you. For those of you who have never believed in Christ, for those who you've drifted, or you know things have grown stale, or you have drifted for any number of reasons, he wants to use Joel 3 to awaken faith. For those of you who do believe in following Christ, he wants to strengthen your faith this morning. Like you came this morning and God desires to strengthen you, to strengthen your faith for when you walk out. And so this passage about final judgment, it is bookended by these two promises that I want us to kind of spotlight and see. Like it begins in verse 1 with a promise. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. And then it ends with a proclamation in verse 16 that the Lord is a refuge to his people. So if you're here this morning, you're watching online, um, do, do you not know Jesus? Not, not merely just know about him, but, but know him personally. My, my prayer is that God will again use his word about the day of judgment to draw you near to him for the first time to awaken faith. And do you know Jesus? Uh, my hope, my prayer for you all week is that God will use his word about the day of judgment to bolster and strengthen your faith, to think about the day as you live out your days. And so we're going to unpack this passage under three headings. And I'll list them up front and then we'll go through it. Number one, God will judge fully. And then we'll get there. Second, God will judge justly. And finally, God will judge graciously. But we start with number one, God will judge fully. Verse two, again, I would encourage you, if you don't have your Bibles open, to keep them open on this passage. We're going to keep kind of going back to it. Verse 2, the Lord proclaims through Joel, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The location mentioned here is not a place on the map. There is not a mention of this valley anywhere in Scripture. There's not a mention of this valley anywhere in ancient writings within the Middle East. Um, and the reason is because it does not exist as a literal location on the map today. And, and so the meaning of him talking about the valley of Jehoshaphat is not in the location, but the meaning is in the name. The Hebrew word translated Jehoshaphat literally means Yahweh has judged. Yahweh has judged. And later in verse 14, Joel will call this same valley twice the valley of decision. I think it's verse 14 where he says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision. The reason why this is not an exact location that Joel or anyone else can point to on the map is because of what he just said before it. He said, I will gather all the nations and I will enter into judgment with them there. That is as comprehensive of a statement as it sounds like. Like, I imagine if you were to close your eyes and picture a location where all the nations of the earth, not only just living today, but all nations that have ever lived, like, picture that in your mind. Like, again, you can't even think about it, but you can feel it. Feel all the nations before the Lord on the same day. 
in the verses that follow, he will mention certain nations that surrounded Israel. I think it helped to just kind of feel this, to help kind of say that the surrounding nations that you deal with, that you know have dealt harshly with you, they'll be there. And they won't be the only ones. They'll be ones of the multitudes of people. He talks about Tyre and Sidon and Philistia. Again, the immediate context that those who are hearing this for the first time are thinking about. But again, it's not limited to those nations. Because as we see in the whole scope of Scripture throughout the Old Testament and moving into the New Testament, it is always moving towards somewhere. History, every single day of every single person's life is heading somewhere. It's heading towards a day of judgment for all people that none will escape. And so all nations means all nations. And it includes the nation of Israel. Uh, I think that's what Paul means in his Romans chapter 1 and 2, where he starts in Romans 1 talking about all nations. And he says, quote, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and his invisible attributes have been revealed to all people so that no one is without excuse. No one means no one, just like all men all. No one will be without excuse on the day of the Lord. But then you go to Romans 2, and in, in case people of Israel, Jewish descent, were saying, like, yeah, all people are going to face judgment. That's right. Yes and amen. Paul then turns to them and says, now, do you suppose, O oh man, that you will escape the judgment of God? He will render to each one according to his works. And Paul says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Each one means everyone. That, that's Paul, but we also see it in Jesus' own teaching in the Gospels. Uh, for those who maybe you're not overly familiar with the Bible or studying the Bible, but you've heard about Jesus and stories of Jesus, uh, you likely, and for good reason, think about Jesus and his compassion, and you think about him and his ability to heal and love and, and, and be willing to engage with all kinds of people from all kinds of walk of life, that he was not judgmental in that way. But make no mistake, as you would read and study your Bible, you would see Jesus did not shy away from talking about judgment. For one, because you cannot be capable of great love unless you were also capable of great wrath. I think we understand that. That you cannot truly love someone unless you have the capability to exert wrath towards the harming of that someone. And so Jesus is in a moment in, in, in Matthew chapter 11 where he's denouncing uh, cities in his day, saying, woe to you cities. And he's speaking primarily to those within uh, uh, the Jewish faith that, that, that did not listen to John the Baptist who came before him and preached the way of the Lord. And they didn't listen to him. And actually, they put him to death. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 22, he says, But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon, the cities mentioned in Joel 3, than it will be for you. And in that moment, Jesus is connecting the people of his day to the people of the ancient cities of Israel's past, drawing near for us that it will, we will all be together on the day of the Lord. And so the, the refrain throughout Scripture is that there is a promise that God will judge the nations and he will do so fully. It is happening. It will happen. And all will be made known on that day. And no one will avoid that day. And you and I along with all people, will be in the valley of Jehoshaphat. And to deny that, or to live our lives as if that won't happen, because how easy it is to distract ourselves from that. 
it's kind of easier, better to not think about that. But that's a dangerous game to play. There is no generation. There's no location. There's no pocket of human history that will not be there on that day. God will judge fully. And there's no opt-out clause. And there's no exemption letter you can hand in for the day of the Lord. Second, God will judge justly. At this point in the sermon, I will admit something. Um, it is not in my nature to enjoy preaching about the judgment of God. And remind you that one of the many reasons why we choose to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and that's a conviction of our leadership here, and it has been, and Lord willing, will continue to be. One of the reasons why we do that, not the only reason, but one of them, is that it would help keep me, prevent me, or whoever else is preaching from skipping certain topics, skipping certain doctrines that are uncomfortable for me personally to preach. Because I imagine they'll be uncomfortable for you to hear. And, and, and I just got to be honest, I can't think of a topical series where I get to choose the topic and then I get to choose kind of topics of sermons within that series and then get to go choose a passage to support that topic where I'm ever going to find a topical series where I'm going to look, sit down at my desk and open my Bible and be like, you know what, Joel chapter 3, that's what we need for this series. It would not come up in a topical series. I, I, and, and I'm not saying this is every preacher. I'm saying this personally, a vivid description of how God will judge the whole earth will not fit into a series that I come up with. And yet, I would not be faithful to my calling as a pastor in overseeing and shepherding the church along with the elders if we only taught the things that I personally felt comfortable preaching. And so, it is very much in, quote, being forced to study, forced to prepare forced to write, forced right now in this moment to stand up and preach Joel 3, that I pray and have experienced in my life, and I hope now you experience it this morning, that the Lord will graciously reveal his purposes for passages like Joel 3 for our edification, to instill hope, not fear. And one of the reminders in that is that God will, just, will judge justly, meaning with perfect justice. And so again, if whatever preconceived notions or previous teachings you have heard about the day of the Lord or the day of judgment or standing before the Lord in judgment, maybe some of it's been good, maybe a lot of it has been bad, maybe you just really haven't heard about it at all. We want to be reminded that God is the perfect judge. And if we really were to peel back the onions in our own hearts and our own minds, we would know that perfect justice is something we long for, that we desire to see, that we have all been tuned to the desire to see perfect justice. Uh, I remember years ago um, reading what I consider to be a pretty landmark book called uh, Just Mercy. It's written in 2015 by a man named Brian Stevenson. Uh, Brian Stevenson did an internship out of college advocating for death row inmates. And this passage is from, or this uh, quote is from the introduction of the book, Just Mercy. He said, quote, my short time on death row revealed that there was something missing in the way we treat people in our judicial system. That maybe we judge some people unfairly. 
The more I reflected on the experience, the more I recognized that I had been struggling my whole life with the question of how and why people are judged unfairly. If you were to keep reading in the introduction a few pages later, he would share a couple stats. He would say that the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world. That the prison population rose from 300,000 people in the early 1970s to 2.3 million people in 2015 when the book was written. And another 6 million people on top of that were on probation in 2015. He went on to share that one in every 15 people born in the U.S. in 2001 at this rate will go to prison. And more hauntingly, one in every three black male babies born in this century is expected to be incarcerated at some point. Now, this is not a commentary on the justice system in the U.S., but it does spotlight even in however small measure of just how unjust this world can seem. And we can feel it. And how that then colors our pictures of God's judgment. We hear about it that often we will think about God's judgment as something that is negative or something that cannot be fair because we're exposed to so much unfair justice in our world today. So when we tune our hearts to God's judgment, uh, I pray that we can affirm these two things about the day of the Lord and God's judgment that that you will carry forward out of this room. That now, moving forward, when we hear about God's judgment, these two things will come to mind. Number one, all people will be judged justly. And then number two, and don't lose this, no one will ever get away with injustice. God's judgment. All people will be judged fairly, justly. And number two, no one will ever get away with injustice. And let's hold those two together because his justice is perfect. God never got a case wrong. God never had somebody or will never have somebody come before him and say, you know what, you didn't give me a fair shake. This was too harsh a sentence for me. And then held right in tandem with that, there will be no such thing as, quote, getting away with it. Uh, That's what we prominently see displayed in in the first couple poems in Joel. Uh, The nations thought that they had conquered God because uh, of the way those nations conquered God's people. And if we conquer God's people, we must have also conquered their God. That's how they thought. Verse 3, you scattered them among the nations and divided up their land. You cast lots and sold them as slaves. Horrifically, you sold boys as prostitutes, exchanged girls for wine. Verse 5, you've taken silver and gold. You've removed them from the borders to foreign lands. And so they had a confidence about them that they outmaneuvered God. And their temporary success in this world fueled their rampant evil. Because when you start to get away with things, you must think, oh, I must always will get away with it. They had not been judged yet. God hasn't struck me down. And so since God hasn't struck me down, I must be okay. The nations thought they got away with it. And then we see what the real truth will be in verse 7. When the Lord says, I will return payment on your own head. Joel chapter 3 shows the role reversal of the day of judgment. The evil you poured out on God's people will now be poured out on you. And verse 8, for the Lord has spoken. The perfect justice of God means that no one will get away with it. All oppressors will be punished. 
Those who are oppressing people today, those who have oppressed across history and seems to die without any ramifications that they've felt. His judgment on that day, with a capital D, will be more to make up for the lack of justice that they did not receive in this world. In, in the second poem, again, that starts at verse 9, we get this description of a weak army doing all that they can before God on that day. He, he says, gather everyone. Right? Joel's almost pro, like, uh, like taunting them, like proclaim war among the nations. Verse 10, he says, even let the weak say I am a warrior. Give everyone a sword. Bring them all, all hands on deck, and it will come to nothing. Verse 12, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley, for there, God says, I will sit to judge. Did you notice that? God says, I won't even need to stand up amongst all the nations. All the nations will be before me, and I will sit down. I'll do this sitting down. The Bible does not describe some epic battle on the day of judgment. Right, like a, like a final scene in Rocky, where like he's on the ropes, and oh no, he might be beaten, but then he pulls a right hook out and puts the enemy back on his back. No, there will be no epic battle on that day. It will be like in the summertime, when you're out in the field, and you sit down, and you're laying in the grass, and you're having a picnic, and you notice that an ant just crawled onto your leg, and you lean down, and you flick the ant off your leg. That will be the day of judgment. He'll do it sitting down, no contest. And so I want to share even just a couple quick applications that what we've seen so far that can see how this translates to our lives today for believers today before we move to the final point. Um, number one, this gives us assurance. These truths held in tension together give us assurance that even as we pursue and advocate for justice in this world, as God's people, as he's called us to do in the local church, shining a light into the darkness, advocating for the marginalized in ways that we're able to in, in areas of racial injustice, in, in areas of justice for the unborn, and, and everywhere in between, that we know that as we advocate and pour ourselves out to those ends, we understand and we know that ultimate, ultimate vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so what we do, what we can... Empowered by the Spirit, with the resources we have and the voice we have. But our hope at Grace Church is not ultimately found in our justice efforts. It's found in the fact that our Father is the perfect judge. And no oppressor will get away with it on that day. That's number one, it can give us assurance. But number two, and I want to be careful here, but this can bring needed conviction in our lives. Because we know, and I'm sure you know, like I feel every day, that we still battle our own flesh in our own lives. And it's not just the oppressors out there, but the, that within us that is capable of oppressing. And we battle against sin. And we battle against temptation that remains in us. And this is a reminder for us that all will be made known on that day. And all that is done in the darkness will be brought into the light. And so a reminder of God's justice is not our only motivation to resist sin, but it is a motivation. One of the many reasons why Jesus himself and all throughout the authors, they talk about it, is to ensure that we don't lose a vision for that day, because when we have a vision for that day of the darkness being brought to light, it enables us in the moment by the Holy Spirit to resist darkness in the present. 
and again, I want to say this carefully, but truly, um, some of you are thinking about sinning against God this week. And you've been thinking about it for a while. And there's various reasons why you feel like you've gotten to a point where this week you're going to do something that you've been thinking about for a while. Or possibly not just a one-time thing or think for the first time, but you are planning this very week to leave this room and to continue into a lifestyle of habitual sin. And you have perhaps convinced yourself that God hasn't punished you yet for that, hasn't exposed you yet for that, so he must not care. You must be okay. He must understand that you can do that. Or perhaps, horrifically, you've convinced yourself, even as a follower of Jesus, that you will get away with it because, you know, God will cover you in the end. It won't really matter. It's a dangerous game. Never mistake God's patience with you for passivity towards you. Never mistake God's patience with you for passivity or indifference towards you. And is it possible that one of the reasons why you're here this morning is to be directly told by the Spirit through the preaching of his word to resist that which you are planning to do? You don't have to do it. You have the power to overcome it. And for those of you who feel convicted that you've already done it, you have, by the Spirit within you, the power to confess it, to walk in the joy of repentance. And it will be painful at first, but you will be free. You'll be free. It's not worth it. God will judge justly. And now we move to number three. God will judge graciously. Again, Bible's open. Look down at verse 16 again. What a verse tucked away in Joel chapter 3 in the middle of your Bible. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. Here's one of those amazing three-letter but words in the Bible. But the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. The Lord is a refuge. Uh, a refuge is a place you go to in order to find safety from an impending disaster. We often hear during hurricane season, those who are in the path of a hurricane, they are to evacuate. Why? To find safe refuge. For those who are under tyrannical rule in their country, that they have to flee and let their family flee as refugees to another country with nothing they have. Why? Because they need safe refuge from impending disaster from their own government. And this verse 16 gets us to the heart of the gospel. It gets us to the heart of the Bible story. Remember, all roads lead to London and England. That's what Spurgeon said. And all verses and passages in the Bible lead to Christ. Because God's grace is the only thing that will save us from God's judgment. God's grace is the only thing that will save us from God's judgment. The Lord who will be the only one to judge all people is also the only one who provides refuge. And some of you know that and glory in that and your hearts are stirred for that. And other of you maybe are confused by that. Of like, how can that be? How can it be that a God who gives judgment is the same God who provides refuge from that judgment? It doesn't seem to make sense in our world economy. 
It's that we know from within and we know because it's been revealed in his word that we cannot be a refuge ourselves. We cannot be our own refuge simply by even trying to love God as best as we can or follow God and obey God, that God will never say that you will find refuge in your own power. He said that you'll never find refuge in anything else in this world because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all is another place in the Bible where you know what all means? It means all. And since God is a perfect judge, nothing in this world can be a refuge to those who sin against him. And we are in the clenches of the enemy. And outside of Christ, we are heading towards destruction on the day of the Lord. And so God draws us near to himself as a refuge. Meaning, not that he just overlooks sin and says, hey, don't worry about it. I got you. But rather, powerfully, he doesn't say don't worry about judgment. He says, I will take the judgment of sin upon myself on your behalf. If again, your Bibles are open, there's a hint of this in verse 2. Look at verse 2 when he says, I will enter into judgment with them there. On behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, I will enter into judgment. I will enter into judgment. And God came in the flesh, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, to graciously and willingly enter into the judgment. I will enter into the judgment. And through that entrance, he carried us through so that being united to him in faith and in resurrection life, we are now saved from that judgment. Our God is a refuge. And the judgment for that sin that is rightfully owed to you, because remember, he judges justly on the day of the Lord. What the Bible goes on to reveal is that that judgment owed to you on that day coming was actually poured out onto him on that day 2,000 years ago on the cross. And God, again, has graciously revealed this to us in his word. He has made himself known to us that we can have full assurance in this life that as you approach the day of judgment, you don't have to do so with fear. You don't have to do so with, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm not sure what's going to happen to me. But rather... With the spirit in you, which he talked about last week, and united in faith, that day of judgment can be anticipated with hope. What a reversal. That that can be a day of hope for you. And actually instill you with hope now. That on that day in the valley of decision, the Lord decides on you based upon the work of his son, Jesus. And this is why we often say that the Christian life is not primarily defined by what you do for God but it is belief in what God has done for you. It starts there. His deep love for you. You see, the day of judgment, rightfully seen, actually reveals his deep love for you. His delight in seeing you as a new creation. His delight in seeing you in the valley on that day. And the freedom you have to live as one who is fully loved and covered. I said earlier how the valley of Jehoshaphat, it means in the Hebrew, remember that Yahweh has judged. And then he sends his one and only son, Jesus. Do you know what Jesus means? It's the same root word. It means Yahweh saves. 
God's grace is the only refuge that will save you from God's judgment. And in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, that prophecy given by the wise Mr. Beaver, it rang true. But even Mr. Beaver, in all his wisdom, did not know how that would happen at the end of the book. You see, the lion, Aslan, he freed Edmund from the clutches of the white witch. But to the shock of everybody, he did it by exchanging his life for the boy's life. And then Aslan was put to death on the stone table. And then in the final scene, in the final battle, which takes place, by the way, where? In a valley. When hope seemed lost, Aslan appears on the mountain. And he roars to the horror and dismay of the witch. For she knows the curse has been broken. And winter has met its death. And C.S. Lewis wrote his story, rooted in the story of the world. And near the very end of our book, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 5, a man named John had another vision of that day, and he recorded it, and we close with these words, Revelation 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The Lord roars from Zion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder out of this Joel chapter 3 that your son Jesus has broken the curse. That winter has met its death. And I pray, Lord, that we don't just see this truth. We don't just think about this truth this morning, but that we pray that we'd feel it. I pray that for everyone here this morning, for everybody listening, that we would understand that the day of the Lord can and impact every single day of our lives. It can instill hope in us. It can awaken faith. It can strengthen faith. Father, give us a vision for this. Give us a vision for that day. Let your vision be our vision. And allow that hope to rise, not only for our good, but for your glory, for the good of our neighbor, and for a dark world that is so desperate to see the light of Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in song fittingly by singing Be Thou My Vision.